Welcome to They Live by Film, a film discussion podcast focusing on the Criterion channel and beyond. My name is Adam Lundy, and I'm joined as always by my co-hosts Chris Haskell and Zach Bryant. How are you doing today, dudes? Feeling good, feeling spooky. Day 23 of the Halloween challenge. Yes, indeed. I, I just watched my my 22nd movie i didn't get to watch a movie yesterday i was too busy so i'm gonna have to watch two tomorrow to try and make up for it or maybe <laughs> one later i'm going out for dinner tonight so i might not get a chance to watch one later but i'm doing nothing tomorrow so two tomorrow so uh, yeah this is our, our halloween sort of special our horror special we're going to be talking about two different horror films from different eras different parts of the world two very different kinds of films and we've also some other little bits in between and um, just to sort of uh, pull our focus on horror uh, just before we get into the nitty gritty, just as a little sort of reminder, another little plug, our Patreon is now live at patreon.com forward slash they live by film. The unedited version of last week's podcast is already up, ready to listen. Uh, there will be an unedited version of this week's podcast by the time you are listening to this now, <laughs> as well as uh-huh. uh, as well as the October uh, newsletter will also be live uh, from the 25th, which again will already be live if you're listening now um <laughs> so uh, before we jump in then so uh any any tidbits any wild stories before we jump in this week guys anything new well uh i'll give my news that i am the final two candidates in the job i applied for so i might be at a target here soon thank god yes hey speaking of that how uh when does target start putting out christmas decorations <laughs> is it started uh, well i think they're just trying to get all that halloween candy out so they can just do that as soon as possible they're not quite hobby lobby level of putting it out in july but <laughs> yeah exactly we should be getting there so <laughs> we were uh scrolling through netflix yesterday because i was uh anyways my wife was wanting to watch something so we we got to like only the second uh bar down of like of suggestions was already some christmas stuff and i was like damn that algorithm knows her really well she definitely <laughs> knows a christmas thing yesterday <laughs> <laughs> Well, I was watching Cure uh, in, in my headphones. Probably have to do a Christmas special now in a, in a, in a couple of weeks' time. So we we can do one anytime after, after July. It's, she's talking about it in our house. <laughs> and all I'm sitting there thinking, like, man, I'm going to be broke for the next two months. That's why I had to, like, go ahead and buy that Vincent Price collection. I was like, this is probably the last opportunity I'll have to buy anything decent until <laughs> next year. <laughs> Let's go. I can't wait to talk about horror. That's what I was going to say. Let's, let's hop right in. So the first film we're going to be talking about today is the 1933 film, uh, The Invisible Man, from the amazing James Whale. If you're somehow unfamiliar with The Invisible Man, even as a character, uh, to give you the basic rundown of the plot from IMDb, is a scientist finds a way of becoming invisible, but in doing so, he becomes murderously insane. This is, it is basically like... This is what I kind of love about universal horror films. I've been watching a lot over the last couple of weeks with the ones that are on the Criterion channel. And then I also have been, I've been watching sort of a few other ones sort of before that in the last 12 months. And I just love how simple these movies are in a good way. And um, there is no bells and whistles. There's no like there is some symbolism here and there. Obviously, they all kind of have these underlying themes. But um, usually it's just the movie starts. Here's your monster going to kill some people. And then you know it ends it's simple as that there and even when even when the movie ends like it ends there's no like catching up with the heroes or seeing the aftermath it's just like it ends there you go there was your your 70 80 minute movie enjoy 
Peter <laughs> Jackson could have learned a little bit for that. Absolutely, you know. <laughs> the <laughs> ring is done. Movie over. No, we don't that's know it. Anything. As soon as Smeagol went into the lava, that should have been the movie over. End credits. We don't need to see the rest. It's not important. And James Whale knew this. <laughs> Maybe this is because I just saw the Friday Jason uh, Seven last night. But do you think that Smeagol's just there under the lava, biding his time until somebody comes and releases him? Yes, I, I truly want a slasher version with Lord, like in the Lord of the Rings universe now. Yeah, I'm <laughs> sure Lord of the Rings. So, like, would he like come out and he'd be like, would he be like wearing like a hockey mask, or would it be like Smeagol X, where like he has <laughs> he gets he gets Uber taken Smeagol. into. Yeah, like he just he, he got taken into like one of like those orc buildings that are hanging around Mordor, and they just like build them up with like loads of iron and stuff. Well, and there has go. to be like whatever the, you know. The, they go through so many different landscapes in the Lord of the Rings series. I don't remember specifically a, a campground, but there was that one like kind of swampy area they went to where there was like ghosts like under the water when they went yeah. down. Yeah, right, that's towers, a pretty good yeah. place for for Smeagol to come and and start some shit. <laughs> Anyway, um, the Invisible Man. Uh, <laughs> 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 invisible. We're going to be like, all the Patreon is is us talking about Friday the 13th. <laughs> Lord of the Rings. It's just, it's other movie, any other movie except the ones we're supposed to talk about. Um, exactly. Yeah. What, what did you guys think of Invisible Man? Anyone want to jump in first? Uh, I could jump in. Um, so Invisible Man is like my favorite Universal Monster movie. It's not like, if we're going to talk about, even talk about other James Bond movies, it's not as emotional as like Bride of Frankenstein, which I will admit is just a really great movie. It's probably his best in a lot of ways, but I don't know. There's something just so fun and ridiculous about um, Invisible Man. And I'm, and Clyde Rains is his name, right? Is that the, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Clyde Rains. Yeah. Yeah. Clyde Rains. He's just, he has that campiness element to him, like all the way through. And he, to me, he carries the movie like that, the voice and everything else. And I mean, he wasn't even first chance. I think it was supposed to be Boris Karloff at one point. Oh, and uh, the guy who played um, Dr. Frankenstein in Frankenstein. Uh, I never I'm remember that dude's name. Yeah, I can't <laughs> think of it either. It was supposed to be him at one time. Uh, I, one thing I think is really impressive almost 100 years later is still kind of like, of course, we have better special effects now. But still, the fun of things this old is trying to figure out how they do it. And honestly, yeah. it's so cool because I'm not, ex- I had to watch like the special features because I wasn't exactly sure how they pulled off like some of that stuff. It's really cool, like how they go through it. And um, I think there was a part where they talked about James Whale said like the hardest, the most difficult scene he ever did was in Invisible Man where he's sitting in front of the mirror. Yeah. He said that was incredibly difficult, hardest scene he ever had to film. Uh, because apparently they had to use like four different camera shots just to composite that all together. Really cool. I just think it's a really neat film. I think it's, you have a great villain. I think he's one of my favorite villains. He has no like emotional depth to him like Frankenstein, like the Frankenstein's monster does or anything like that. But it's just fun. So it, it is fun. And it's uh, number 2,252 on They Shoot Pictures. Okay. Um, which, yeah, it seems fair. I, I could, I could put it higher. Um, but for me, I, I feel like there's some, I, I like this movie more than most other horror movies from that time, especially, um, it's number 70 on they shoot zombies. So it does get some love on, on yeah, the horror list. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, 
They, what didn't they talk about using like instead of green screen like black screen like like an early version it's like of, a velvet or something yeah yeah i think i re remember hearing that too I, this is my like this is one thing i love about uh to, to be to be fair we, we've joked about james cameron and michael bay being the same person uh but one thing i do love about michael bay slash james cameron is when whenever like you have these certain directors that like invent things for the movies they make and invent visual tricks and invent invent like ways to manipulate the angles and the shadows and and you know like i just felt like i was watching kind of a technical masterpiece like what this whole time and that's not even getting into the story which is awesome and, or, like the way they executed the story which is so good uh i'll talk about that in a minute but like just to kind of further your point uh so far zach like I just don't know. I mean, maybe you could talk about some of the work that um, was it. Uh, who did Sunrise? Is it was that Murnau? Murnau, yeah, Murnau. He did some pretty technically magnificent work in some of his movies. Yeah, um, sure. I, and just felt like there was this. You know, like we don't really. Or, well, sorry, I don't really think about the twenties and the thirties as this time of like a creative explosion of what can be done with cinema with film. But I'm starting to see it in a different way. Maybe start to see it more like that because. Some of the stuff they're doing is just amazing. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think your advantage to like the 20s and 30s are there are no rules. There's no expectation of how you do things. It's almost like a problem, blue collar sort of way. Like, okay, I need to make a movie where this guy looks invisible. How do we do that? Yeah, right. It's like, it's not like, well, here's how they've done it in the past. It's like, how am I going to figure this out? And you have just people just working with what they have. I mean, you know, cameras are obviously huge and bulky at the time. So you're not going to be able to do a ton, but. I think that helps a lot too with uh, with his era. You're saying yeah. there's no steady cam in the 30s. <laughs> <laughs> there's basically nothing. That, yeah, like the the effects are incredible. Like I I purposely didn't look up how they did it because I was just happy, like just sort of being amazed by it because I I couldn't figure it out. I I genuinely did not think didn't think it was going to be possible. Um, and there's another the universal films at this time were just always trying to sort of be a bit groundbreaking there's another universal film uh for dr jekyll and mr hyde which i haven't seen and um, but i've seen I, I sort of i know a bit a bit about it in terms of how they did the transformation from dr jekyll to mr hyde where they essentially had the actor wearing different kind of like face makeup and when they would change the filter on the camera during the scene it would bring out the sort of darker Mr. Hyde makeup. That is so actually like, really cool. I did not really, really awesome. cool to watch it. Like this, this past, uh -huh. uh, dur during the week, I um, did my yearly rewatch of the uh, BBC miniseries, uh, Mark Gattis's history of horror. It's a three part series. The BBC put out about 10 years ago. And I watch it like every year. Cause it's just, it's just a fun watch and it goes over quite a lot of horror history and um, mainly from his own perspective of stuff that he likes but um uh, i like mark gaddis so it's an interesting watch and it's free to watch on youtube if anyone else is interested but yeah he talks about the universal era um quite a bit in the first episode and he he showed a clip from that film like during the transformation and talking about how it was done and yeah it was just crazy and yeah i can only i can only imagine the sort of hardship they had to do to come up with something like this to make it look so believable because it does it doesn't look hokey or fake or cheesy or anything like that it, it looks like they genuinely had an invisible man it's so well done they're yeah. just we i know we, we're kind of joking about always talking about friday the 13th but there's a there's a special effects in jason seven 
because that's the one where the where the one of the main characters has telekinesis abilities. Oh, Friday, uh, Friday thirteenth yeah. versus Carrie. Yeah, the the new blood was it? That was the one? yeah, the new, new blood. blood. Yeah, yeah. And versus Carrie, nice. Um, <laughs> and there's a scene where she's moving a matchbox on a table, and the special effects there in 1980, like eight or whatever that was, are worse than the Invisible Man. <laughs> yeah, because it's obvious in like that one, it's just a magnet. Like there's a magnet in the matchbox or whatever. Yeah, it's like exactly. It's like jerky, and it's like like she's not. It's it's not. There's nothing smooth about it at all. Especially when Palma did that better, like ten ten years before that, with with actually with Carrie, <laughs> stuff moving. <laughs> yeah, it's, but no, it, it, and it's you know it's actually kind of you know this is a slightly slight tangent, but it's actually kind of interesting to me that you don't have like a lot of these people who are making these like low budget, no budget horror films. You know, a lot of people who do Indiegogo and stuff aren't using a lot of these old techniques because they're so inventive then, but they're doable. That's kind of the thing. Like you can, like, you know, uh, Adam was talking about the filter. I mean, we understand how filters work and that is something tangible. It's not like, you know, thousands of hours on a computer trying to render an effect. This is something you can still do now. And it, it's, it's kind of interesting you know, you have these things that were done a hundred years ago that are more easy to do now and nobody really does them. But I think there is like a lot of potential for that. Like just figuring out things without the computer. I think computer effects are incredibly important and I think they're great, but there's some cool stuff you can still do practically that isn't expensive or takes a lot of makeup. Like, yeah, I agree. I don't, I don't, I think horror films have gone over a, a big reliance on, on CGI in the past sort of 10, 20 years. Like I was watching the film I watched earlier was the Curse of Frankenstein, the Hammer film, mm-hmm. and you know something as simple as just having a load of blood in a pack and be bright red and just gush out of someone's face is a million times better than the shitty CGI blood that they do nowadays on horror films. That CGI gore and blood it it annoys the crap out of me because it just looks so fake. Like just just get a bucket of red paint and throw it at someone. It's it's so much better and more satisfying. Yeah, there, there's very few instances where I, I don't get, like, because it's corn syrup and, what, what did they always say in Scream? It's corn syrup and red food coloring. I mean, Yeah, red food coloring and corn syrup. The same thing they use for blood and carry. <laughs> that's it. That's the line. And, um, you know, it, it, it's like, there's a couple exceptions where I'm, I'm fine with it. Like, I rewatched Halloween 2018 about a week ago. And they do, of course, that one take where he's going yeah. house to house. And at the end, they use CGI blood. I get that. Because if that pack fucks up and messes up the whole shot, then you're just like, well, that was a waste. Yeah. With that one, I'm like, yeah, when you're doing that, I can understand it. But just a simple, like stabbing or shooting, like get a squib on, like just put a squib on and, you know, take, take the hit a little bit. Um, yeah. It's interesting that the, the, I guess going back to, you know, the fact that they were doing all this stuff back in 1933, already not so much with the blood and the invisible man but there was something else they were doing there which i I thought was really fun and i wish more people did Uh, they brought preston sturges in as a contributing writer to this film Mm -hmm. i thought that was a i thought that was like a inspired choice like i love that idea of bringing in somebody who's that kind of quirky and and kind of screwbally and funny into the story i think it really added a lot because this movie is way funnier than i expected as well yeah, for sure. It kind of has even, it, it kind of even goes to the sort of line of kind of horror comedy at some points. Like, you know, there's a lot of murders in the movie, but um, Claude Rains, it, it's very, it's a very camp performance, yeah. I think. 
And it, see, this this is the thing about James Whale. Like, obviously, person surgery, I'm sure, had a big factor in that. But James Whale in general, like, I know you've seen the old Dark House, Chris. Have you seen that, Zach? The I not the William not, Castle remake, but yeah. that that film basically invented camp. It's another James Whale film with Charles Lawton and and Gloria Stewart, who's also in this film, to even connect that up to James Cameron, as you mentioned. Earlier, Chris, uh, Gloria Stewart is, of course, Old Rose and Titanic. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, like that film just like invented the camp haunted house movie, essentially. And I'm sure both Whale and Sturgis had a major part to play in why this film is, is a little bit camp. It's a little bit goofy. It's a little bit out there, despite all the sort of horrible things that do happen. It's still really sort of light. There's still a lot of levity in the film. Like, I, I remember when I wrote my review, like, I kind of wrote that I didn't even kind of think it was really a horror film. Um, it was more of like a sci-fi, not even thriller, just kind of like a sci-fi drama. And then someone responded to me and pointed out how many murders happened in the film. And I thought, oh, yeah, I didn't really like think of all those because, like you know, there was just so much other kind of goofy stuff going on. You don't really think about all the people that this, that this dude killed. And, you know, it's interesting, too, because... Like, even though this came out in the 30s, it's very reminiscent of the 50s. Like, you know, the science gone wrong, the blob, the fly, you know, it's uh, it, that fear of science after the nuclear bomb and everything else. It, it, it has a lot of that. It almost feels like when they were doing all those things, they took a lot from the Invisible Man because it's like, yeah, we're going to make it a little ridiculous, like a little camp. Rob Zombie's famous for basically kind of being like the Quentin Tarantino of horror, right? In the sense that he just kind of pulls from a lot of like oh, previous films for, for the films he makes. Um, is it, But I feel like that's more common than I thought. I was researching Slasher's history. I was just a little curious. Zach, have you, or Adam, have you all ever seen this movie called 13 Women? Yeah, I've seen it. It's made I, like I've heard of it. I, I haven't seen it, but I've definitely heard the name. It, it's... Uh, is it really like kind of a, the, the first, does it have the feel of a slasher film, Zach? Is, it, is that right? I, I guess you could say that. I mean, there's a lot of debate about what's the first like step into the slasher. I mean, um, I've watched The Leopard Man earlier this year, and that's credited as that a lot. Um, that I've heard as well. I mean, it's just, I, if, I think if you go in a very broad sense, I could see that. Like, I, I think it's, it definitely doesn't, of course, have its hallmarks, but it has that basic plot to it, like of what you would expect from a slasher. Um, so yeah, it's always interesting because you could probably go back into the silent era of basically they could, you know, 20 minutes looking at the camera sort of thing and maybe find something, but. Yeah. You, you mentioned like, you know, in the fifties, it just, it just kind of made me think about that a little bit too. I, I feel like every generation kind of pulls from the previous in some way, right? Like yeah. that you kind of like improve on the, on the previous generation to some level in filmmaking. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's just like uh, when Texas Chainsaw Master came out, it's pulling from um, Peeping Tom and Psycho um, and all that, and it just keeps going back and back and back. So it's always kind of interesting to find this is the starting location. Because, I mean, even with Invisible Man, the plot is so identical to Frankenstein. Like, plot beats are the same. Characters are the same, essentially. Mm. That you're like uh, whale pulled from his own movie. I mean, it even has like the the guy who wants to be with the scientist girl for, uh, girlfriend or wife, and he's supposed to also be helping and stuff like that. It's it's like 
the same exact character from Frankenstein to Invisible Man. So it, it's interesting to see how they kind of pull from that, and Whale especially, because I think he was like, yeah, it'll work. And I think he improved upon a lot, too, like from Frankenstein, because I don't find the heroine quite as unbearable like <laughs> I do in the first Frankenstein movie. <laughs> I like her better here. I think it's probably down to Gloria Stewart as being a better actress, perhaps. Yeah, yeah that could have a lot to do with it as well. You talk it, the way you talk about that makes me think of like what if George Miller made a movie called like Silly Sam or something? It was like it wasn't Mad Max, but it's like the same thing. <laughs> happy Feet Three. <laughs> yeah, or happy see, Feet. I think I think a lot of the Universal films kind of have they, they were kind of like you know very Marvel in their formulaic. Mm-hmm. Like they they have like like obviously the MCU, especially the first sort of ten films, are kind of derided for having a very formulaic structure they just follow the same kind of plot beats and obviously they've improved on that over the last sort of five or six years with you know branching out into different things but i think the universal films kind of go like that as well a lot of the time it's okay here's the movie here's a scientist or you know here's a you know some kind of some kind of authority figure whether it be you know the invisible man or or whoever he's the villain there's a female that he's always trying to get after People are trying, people come and hunt down the monster and he's dead and that's the end of the movie. So like, whether it be Dracula or whether it be Frankenstein or what, you know, even like, you know, later ones like Creature from the Black Lagoon, you know, they're, they always kind of follow very similar plot beats. They just kind of change the location, um, which again is something I do like about Universal Films. Like this film is very British. This is... <laughs> It is so British. You can just tell that James Whale, you know, just took a lot from, you know, you know, from from what he would have seen growing up. Like it's it's such a British movie. It has a lot of drawl, humor, and it almost has the same kind of feel of like an like the kind of Hitchcock films that were coming out around this time. Even though completely different genres, it kind of has the same feel as a film like you know The Lady Vanishes or uh, The Thirty Nine Steps. Um, you know, very, very, very British films and The Invisible Man, even though it's the same kind of plot beats, it aesthetically is very, very different to the other sort of more gothic universal films, like obviously Frankenstein and Dracula with all the big castles and everything like that. They're all very gothic, whereas this is just, I think, is a bit more, a bit more homely, a bit more British, you know, um, so it, I, I can see what you mean by kind of being like a copy of Frankenstein, but I think he does enough different with the style and the aesthetics that it, it does stand on its own. And he, like, I honestly didn't even do, compare the two until you had mentioned it, to be honest. Just and because you make they a great do point, because I mean, I'm yeah. not criticizing either, because I love both movies. But um, yeah, you're right. The, the feel of them is definitely unique like, to one another. In the in the documentary I, was, I talked about earlier from... Um, from Mark Gaddis, he called James Whale the first horror auteur. And, you know, I definitely get that when I watch his films. Like he just, he, he has a style and a flourish and a campiness. It's just, it's just him. You can, you can tell you're watching a James Whale movie. Like, from, like even like in, in The Bride of Frankenstein, that Dr. Pretorius character, you know, he's like the campiest character in like, in any sort of universal film. As soon as he shows up, you're like, yeah. This is definitely a James Whale movie. Only James Whale would have this camp of a character in the middle of his horror film. So um, I think it's a confidence with him too. Like I think that I think you have to be confident in what you're doing 
for sure go with this type of tone and i think that's what makes whale kind of step apart from a lot of people who were making even other universal monster films like when we talk about some of the best it seems like his are the ones that are always named yeah like, like the bride of frankenstein i think is probably in terms of like just pure cinematicness i think just the bride of frankenstein is probably the best out of the lot um personally anyway i just think it's the best yeah it's a great um, movie. the black cat i think maybe would be close um i think the difference really between the really good ones and the ones that aren't so good are definitely the filmmakers you know you talk about like the black cat which is which is Ed- edward g ulmer yeah like the same guy who made detour you know he knew how to make a thrillery film on a, on a, on a really low budget james whale created these really sort of some sometimes gothic but sometimes also really fun and really funky and really groovy films and then you look at other ones that maybe aren't as good and you don't even know who the filmmakers are and you can definitely tell there's like a that's where the difference maker was of being some of the more well-known ones versus the ones that aren't as well known were were the directors because you know they they had the confidence to maybe do something a little bit different and still using the same formula they were still able to make their film stand out Kind of to that point, Adam, I, you got me thinking now with this whole Marvel comparison or MCU comparison. So uh, I had Black Cat up actually to talk about. I just saw that recently. That movie is dark. So good. Such <laughs> a good movie. It's so good. And like the, just the themes are dark. Like the guy that's basically like, you know, executing, I think they say 10,000 people was so happy with his job that he went back and built his home like at the place that he was executing all these people. Hmm. Um, and then married this dude's daughter. <laughs> anyway, I don't yeah. want to give away spoilers, I guess, but just like, wow, it was so good. But then I was watching another one uh, two days ago, or anyways, yeah, about two days ago, called The Raven, that one of the first, I think, takes on The Raven. Yeah, I've seen that one. It also has Lugosi and, and Karloff in it. Yeah. And and just, for, just out of curiosity, I went and I dug into the, because I was like, who's Lou Landers, which... Now that I looked him up, I feel silly asking that question. The guy directed 176 projects. <laughs> um, also has one of my favorite names, uh, name shortage shortages. So his name was Louis Fried, uh, Friedlander. And he went with Lou Landers <laughs> for his name after he, uh, it just like, anyways. Um, but so just check this out. If you think about the MCU, like on a whole different level, right? I think this is kind of a, something that I, I was just shocked at. So Boris Karloff acted in 205 movies, or at least this is IMDb credits. So there's probably some, you know, like things that aren't exactly movies and there's some shorts yeah. and different things, but he has 205 credits. Lugosi has 114 credits, but then the supporting cast in The Raven, Lester Matthews has 216 credits, Samuel Hines, 219. Ian Wolf 304, Spencer Charters 225, and then Al Ferguson 325. These are like seasoned professional actors. <clears throat> I'm sure they were part of the studio. Um, probably just churning out projects, just like we, yeah, you know, just we, we, part kind of yeah. Thing. But like this, that's an intense amount of experience to bring into every project that you're doing at this time, right? I don't think we have anything that resembles that MCU is probably the one that comes closest, but yeah, with comparisons to MCU, a lot of, I think, because 
I guess you really can call this first cinematic universe, especially when you get to the ones like Frankenstein versus the Wolfman or yeah, exactly. Abbott, Abbott and Costello visiting everyone. Which forgets that every villain already died in their movies, but whatever. Like <laughs> <laughs> Continuity wasn't important in the 30s. No. <laughs> or in the Friday the 13th series. No. Nah. <laughs> I don't think you should be able to say part seven when the first six parts didn't matter. <laughs> or when um, the fourth part was called the final chapter yeah or i mean not you know not to throw stones at friday the 13th a medieval horror is the one that like they didn't know what to do so they just started making like components of the original house that were then possessed right i have no idea i can't say i've seen any of the medieval horror movies oh man after i, I think i'm i think i might have seen the ryan reynolds one in like there's the 27 i think there's 27 of those movies jesus now. christ <laughs> it has to be one of the most. It's stat- I mean, and it's amazing because the first movie's not good. <laughs> We've got like, this many movies. It's like the Land Before Time of horror movies. <laughs> At least the first Land Before Time was good. <laughs> yeah. There, there's this honestly, like if you just want camp, if you're in the mood for camp, anything after Emmettville three is just like they don't even try. Like one of the ones is called "It's About Time." And the plot of the movie revolves around like kind of like bending time and like playing with like time travel. And, and, the, and the big crux of the movie, someone says, it's about time. <laughs> is, is that one Vinegar Syndrome released? I swear yeah. it's one of their. I, yeah, 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 yeah. It sounds like one they'd release. Oh, totally. Yeah. <laughs> no, those movies are hilarious. Uh, they're, they're great. Like, yeah. Anyways, I think I didn't see. Yeah, I haven't seen any past seven, but, but four through seven are just fantastic well it's like it's kind of like and i don't want to get too far off topic but this is for the patrons i guess i I guess the weird thing about those movies is you're taking an actual tragedy and saying but what if it was possessed like you're given like almost trying to give credence to what i think his name was ronnie young i know his first name is ronnie I i can't i think his last name was young but um either way i mean you're almost saying like yeah he murdered his family but maybe it wasn't his fault. It's almost like I, into the haunting the, of Sharon Tate that came out of you years ago. Well, this, that's why I hate The Conjuring 3. The con- like, I'm not a big fan of The Conjuring movies in general because Elaine and Ed Warren were, or Lorraine and Ed Warren were hucksters. But yeah. uh, I'm not a fan of the films anyway. But the third one is literally that as well. They, they took yeah. a murder and said, oh, the devil made me do it. And then they're like, oh, but they did. You know, there was this, there was this woman who was possessing him through the power of Satan to kill this guy. And you're like, imagine being that murdered guy's family watching this shit <laughs> of watching their attribute their family members murder to a devil worshiper that didn't exist. They just made it up for the movie to try and. Yeah. I mean, at least so. with like one and two, nobody got hurt. Like, yeah, I mean, they're kind of nobody got hurt <laughs> yeah like you know one like well they're they're deeply embellished you know I, I didn't know much about the sort of story behind the first conjuring until very recently i don't know if you guys do you guys watch buzzfeed unsolved i think we, i think i spoke about this on the podcast no. just these two youtubers who go to like supposedly haunted locations one is a big believer the other guy's a staunch skeptic and they just fuck around in haunted houses um it's very funny and you know they're only like 20 minutes a pop they're very easy to binge um but yeah, they were in like the conjuring house and the story that, you know, they were telling the true story was like completely different to what's in the conjuring film. And then the second conjuring film, the one in, in Enfield, I was already fully aware of that story before the conjuring two came out. I had seen a documentary about it. I had seen a mini series about it. And then 
for, for this, for The Conjuring 2 to come out and just I was sitting there going, none of this is even remotely true to what happened. Like it was a hoax anyway, but like even the stuff that they're like showing is like not even remotely true at all. Um, so I, I was never a big fan of the Conjuring films anyway. I don't even think they're that, like even if I take away the whole aspect of me looking at it through the realistic lens and looking through the lens as a skeptic, which I am, I just don't even think they're that good of a movie anyway. They're all just kind of the same parlor tricks. Yeah, they're they're more just for Juan to kind of play around with haunted houses. Like he has like really effective scenes in both of them. And sadly, the trailers give away all the cool scenes he does. Like the famous class. See, I think it's just the same thing over and over again. They do become silence. repetitive. It's just yeah, like... it's it's just the same formula, you know, of of silence, silence, big noise. And then sometimes you might have like something at a left field where he'll like turn the camera in a direction and there'll be something scary there. And That's why Insidious all... is better than the conjuring. And I hold yeah. But even Insidious kind of goes by the same tricks almost. You know, that scene with Patrick Wilson where like the thing is behind him. It's yeah. all just yeah, I don't know. But there's a there's a fun element in Insidious. Yeah, that's true. Insidious. You have a ton of fun with Insidious. It's like it's, I think it's poltergeist. The first half is better than the second half for sure. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I I don't I don't not like Insidious. Uh, the Conjuring films. I used to think I liked the Conjuring films until I rewatched the first one. I thought, yeah, this isn't for me. I mean, the credit where credits do, and I guess this will tie back into being you know like a force in the horror genre. But the Conjuring, like change 2010's horror yeah better or worse depending on your definition but i mean how, how long do we get haunted house films i mean or the same type of tricks i mean people like took one and i mean now we get to see if malignant will bring us the schlocky horror which i know adam would love <laughs> such a stupid movie <laughs> such a fucking stupid movie but uh anyway back to uh invisible man um invisible man. Qu- question for y'all what 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 is that line where something is is a horror film for y'all versus not? Because you know I was never necessarily like to your point earlier, Adam. I was never necessarily scared in The Invisible Man or felt, no. uh, you know, like like it was. Uh, yeah, scary. I think the line the line kind of changes depending on the era, I suppose. Because like okay. you know, no no Universal film is going to be scary in this day and age. So I think for me. Well, I suppose the one underlying thing throughout all the eras is kind of the atmosphere that the film, you know, gives out. So like Frankenstein has a good atmosphere. Dracula has a good atmosphere. And then, you know, that follows on through it all of horror. Like a good horror film has some kind of atmosphere to it. The Invisible Man doesn't really have that same atmosphere that other, you know, horror films would have. It's not... And I'm not just sort of lumping all into something being gothic, for example. It just has kind of maybe like an underlying tension to it, or like it has maybe you know maybe like a gloomy gothic, I you know idea. So you know like the Frankenstein buildings and everything like that. Or sometimes it might be, you know, sort of maybe like a nightmarish atmosphere. There's always an atmosphere in a, in a horror film. And it's the one thing that kind of always has to bring. Um, but the Invisible Man doesn't really have that. It just kind of plays out. It just kind of plays out like a sort of drama film that happens to have. I mean, I'm even I can't even really call him a monster. You know, I, I struggle to I struggle to call the Invisible Man a monster, even though I know it's a, it's a universal monster in terms of how they're marketed. But I struggle to even call him really a monster because at the end of the day, he is just a dude. It's not like Dracula where he's a vampire 
or Frankenstein where he's like the undead reanimated or the wolf man where he's a werewolf. He's not really a monster. He's just a dude who happens to be invisible. So I, that's why I think it's just, this one is just kind of different in terms of its feel. And I think it's because there isn't an actual real monster and there's no real atmosphere of dread or anything like that. It's just kind of like a kooky movie, which is, which is why I kind of feel like it's more of like a camp kind of horror comedy rather than a straight horror film. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to like defining horror, I have probably been in more arguments than I, I need to be because I think genre classification is one of those things that is both the most worthless thing to discuss, but also does hold some importance when you, depending on how you use it. I am about as broad as it gets. If it attempts to do something horrific or induce this anxiety, I, I, for me, genre classification just needs to be broad. Like when you get into, well, it's more of a suspense movie. Well, it's more of a thriller. I hate the term thriller. I just hate it because most films are trying to thrill you in some ways. I just have a hard time yeah. with it. And I'm sure we'll actually talk about this with our next film, The Cure, which I've heard people say is not a horror film. I would argue it is, but I also argue Silence of the Lamb is a horror film. Um, yeah, of because, course. Well, I, and I mean, for me, it comes down to a lot of times, and I think why horror fans tend to really get down to the genre of like, because there's so much that's like, you have like award seasons who sit there and try to call like a movie like Get Out of Comedy and try to ignore its horror elements just because horror doesn't win awards and it it just downplays it so i'm very broad in it if it tries to be horrific in some sense i usually just throw it in there just to make things simple so would Um, it be like that quote which i think we've mentioned on the podcast before and i can't remember who said it but you know that court case where the judge was like i can't define pornography but i know it when i see it yep is it the same kind of idea with yeah yeah i mean you know because like you know and i agree with a lot of what you say adam you know we talk about atmosphere but you know, then it kind of, that gets a little murky when you start talking about, like, Army of Darkness or, I mean, it, it, not as much as Evil Dead 2. Like, Evil Dead 2 does carry, like, a lot of campiness, a lot of atmosphere. But then what do you do with things like Army of Darkness? What do you do with things like, um, you know, I, I'm going to mention Tremors here very shortly. as a spoiler warning. Uh, you know, what do you do with that? <laughs> that, you know, it, it holds that sense of dread, but it doesn't really focus on having an atmosphere necessarily. So like I, th- there's a sep- <clears throat> there's a separation in my mind that happens here. So everything we're talking about so far is like kind of how the film is executed, right? And what is a horror film based on like how it's executed? Is it has comedy like not that y'all are saying it needs to be executed a certain way, but like you're 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 looking at it through the lens of like how it's executed, right? Yeah. But for me there's something else that I just I'm kind of curious about here. Like the way the reason the invisible man is is scary to me is obviously not like from a sense of watching the film feeling scared but thinking about somebody who has that mental instability that's brought around from a drug that is unknown and the only thing we know about it is that it produces the side effect of of creating like basically aggressive behavior right so basically so so you have this guy who is doing experiments with a drug that makes his skin invisible but has the side effect of making him like it's like pcp or something right it has a side effect of making him like not able to control himself and go in these violent outbursts and that idea is scary right and i think the film gets into like some of the side effects of, of that like in, as he starts to as, as it goes on and he starts to go on his killing um sprees or whatever but like they, they the directors choose to make 
the, the way the film is executed lighter, but it doesn't take away from the idea of being a horror, right? Like the idea of being horrifying, I think. I, I don't know if that, if y'all have any, if, if y'all agree with that or break, like breaking it apart like that, I guess. But to me, that's why I'm fine with calling something like this a horror film. Cause if you were to meet that person in real life, it would be scary to, to know them. Yeah. yeah and I, and it, you know, that, I think that's a little bit more of, let me turn to, I guess an empathetic look at it. Like, you know, it's this idea of, you know, some people, I'll use the example of Halloween. Some people find Rob Zombie's, incarnation of michael a lot scarier than john carpenter simply because meeting tyler main in person is a lot scarier than meeting the castle um those people are wrong i, I agree with you <laughs> are, but <laughs> there is that that sense there that it's like okay if i am directly in that situation how would i feel and mm-hmm. that's kind of where it derives from um and i think that's perfectly fine i, I think that's that's an interesting way to look at it you know i think there is um I can't remember who discussed it. It may have actually been Stephen King when talking about um, Pennywise, you know, what's scarier, you know, this scary looking clown in the dark alley or a normal looking clown in the dark hallway. And in a lot of ways, it's the normal one for a lot of people who watch movies, but in real life, you'd probably have a different perspective or maybe even just a slightly different one. Right. So for this section then, dear listeners, uh, we're not going to do our usual interview nor our usual collection corner with this being a horror special we just thought it'd be a cool time just maybe get to know us a little better about the films we enjoy so we're just going to like talk about our like top five horror films see if we have any you know you know any films that are come across our lists all together i think me and zach are probably going to have at least one that are going to be in common um maybe maybe more we'll see um yeah just thought it'd be cool for us to talk about maybe our top five horror films just to maybe dissect them if anyone has seen them or hasn't seen them maybe we can try and convince someone else to to see them does anyone want to go first or do we want to go through the countdown together each doing our five each doing our four how, how do we want to like break the countdown this down? idea yeah so i'll do our five i'll do our four okay well then before we get into the countdown does anyone have any special mentions they want to give because i do have two special mentions i want to do very quickly i'm going to do just Two real quick, because I did my top five a little different. I, I have a huge love for the slasher genre, so I made a rule that I could only include one slasher movie. Okay. Or the list would all include that. So mine would definitely be like Candyman and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. They're both fantastic slasher movies. They're great. Um, I just, uh, they don't, they're not my favorite slasher movie. So those two won't be included. They normally would be. Yeah, I think Texas is such a hard film to watch. <laughs> I would struggle to want to watch it enough times for it to become one of my favorites. Like Once Was Enough, it's such a raw movie. <laughs> I've seen it probably too many times. You still need oh, to watch uh, the second one. Yeah, it's true, I do. The second one looks absolutely fucking nuts. <laughs> <laughs> no, just some, maybe maybe just special mention for some of the low-budget kind of creative horror stories that are coming out. Like Zach and I, I think have talked about on this podcast before, The Witch Who Came From the Sea. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. just movies like that uh, that they take you know Melatesta's Carnival of Blood honestly American Horror Project the first volume from Arrow um, has some films that are just like it shows what you can do with a low budget if you have a creative vision and 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 the story itself is, is creative and unique uh, you can still make it make a really good film um, I, I just saw this one film that was made in 1978 I, well, I won't go too far because we're talking about favorites, but just an example, like 
It was super low budget. It's called Trauma. It's made in Spain. And it's basically a slasher film in 1978. And like, it's just crazy to think about this guy that just kind of on his own, uh, you know, made this movie, which is essentially a slasher film. Uh, but it doesn't get much love and stuff because it was probably seen by a hundred people. And then somebody in vinegar syndrome went and dug it out. They, maybe they came across it at a festival or, or something, but yeah, I just love the creativity and low budget horror. Trauma is a great watch example. Now, by the way. Oh yeah. It's great. <laughs> and, uh, my, my special shout out is just to two David Lynch films, uh, Mulholland drive, which is definitely not a horror film, but has one of the most terrifying scenes in horror film. It's the, it, the, the scene at Winky's diner. And if you're familiar with Mulholland Drive, you'll know exactly the scene I'm talking about. It's just the most masterfully made horror scene in all of horror. And just in film in general, I think it is the scariest scene because David Lynch tells you exactly what's going to happen. His character tells you exactly what's going to happen, but it still scares the shit out of you when it does happen. It's just one of the most effective jump scares ever. And I'm not a bit, I, I, I personally just don't give a shit about jump scares. I think they're, they're stupid but the way that lynch put this together is just amazing so it's it's one of us it's probably the scariest scene in a film in, in a non-horror film and then the other one which is probably closer to horror i still wouldn't put it in horror even though letterbox does class it as horror and that's the twin peaks movie fire walk with me and um, i still sort of more so think of it as like a family drama that has some horrible things happen in it so there's definitely some scary moments but, but I, I would struggle to class as a horror film that's why i didn't want to include it on the list I thought you were going to um, say a family film. I was like, we have different definitions of a no, family <laughs> drama. <laughs> uh, more so, yeah, definitely not a family film. I, I wouldn't recommend seeing this with your five-year-olds. Um, but uh, yeah, that, those were my just two sort of special shout-outs that I wanted to give because, again, I wouldn't really class them as horror films, but they have horrible moments in them. Um, so so n- number five then. Um, number five on my list is Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Any I, I, Shining has kind of been, I think in the last few years, Shining has kind of become a bit more um, of a divisive film, which is kind of weird to think because it's always been considered a Stone Cold classic. But I see a lot of people online become kind of detractors of it in the last few years that it's not scary and that it's boring and that it's slow. Whoa, really? Yeah, yeah I mean, I've it, seen it's a lot of it. Yeah, it, it's slow, but I mean, that's how Kubrick's not a horror director. And that's no, what yeah. makes The Shining so fascinating. You know, anytime you can get a movie from some, a horror movie from someone who's not into that, it's always interesting because it's like they kind of have to figure out new ways to create horror. And that's what The Shining does. It's so slow and methodical. But like you have to let, like any other Kubrick film, you have to let yourself be there almost. Like you have to let yourself get immersed into the world he's created in this, in this hotel. Um, so yeah, I, I, have seen that too, Adam, and I've, I, I don't get it at all. Like, it's weird. Yeah. Like I'm definitely an atmosphere guy. As I mentioned, when it comes to my horror films, like I, I don't care about jump scares. They don't do anything for me. I don't really get scared at horror movies. So I, I love when a film creates some kind of atmosphere of dread and this sort of slow methodical, sort of process that Kubrick goes through is it just it's really good at building tension and building dread you know that scene where where you know after Wendy's after discovering the the manuscripts and Jack Nicholson is sort of slowly creeping up the stairs trying to get her and she's swinging the bat it's just that's just one of the scariest scenes in horror it's yeah. and it's so different from what like, people will consider horror there's no jump scares there's no monsters there's no ghosts it's just a man out of his mind wanting to hurt 
his wife and her being scared to death of him. And there's just something so real and raw and scary about that. And it's just perfectly filmed. It's, I, I, yeah, I just, I just, I understand what people say it's not scary because to modern audiences, it's not. There's no jump scares. There's no James Waniness about it. It's, it is, it's not a scary movie by modern standards, but it is a horrifying movie. And it's, there's so much dread in the film. And I think a lot of people, and I, I, I hate to generalize like this, but I, I noticed there's like more of a hate in the horror community, some horror, parts of horror communities about ambiguity. And there's a lot in The Shining. Like, yeah, for sure. There's, there's a lot like, you know, what are they seeing? Uh, Why are these things here? And I think that annoys a lot of people that they're not given these answers. Um, mm. that they're not meant to. Um, you're never supposed to feel like horror to me comes when you don't understand something like that's that's kind of the as an adult that's the scariest thing to you because you don't understand or you don't you can't rationalize something and that's kind of what The Shining does it doesn't allow you to rationalize what exactly happens you can sit there and read it as you know like you mentioned that J- um, Jack Torrance is going slowly insane because of tons of factors of cabin fever of wanting to jump back off the wagon sort of idea and yeah. none of these things happen. But then they give you moments like Wendy seeing the, the, the furry skeletons. guy. And yeah. Oh yeah. The, yeah, and, that, yeah. You know, it's and it, anything you could have read, you're thinking, okay, is, is that what I'm supposed to read? And you never get a direct answer. You can still there's, read however you want, but you never get the answer that is going to satisfy you. There's a, there's a funny, I don't Have you guys seen the, the documentary room 237? Oh my God. It's so funny. Like <laughs> I remember I watched it when it first came out. It's nearly 10 years ago now. I think it first came out and I was still a teenager. I was still new and it, it like blew my mind. And then it showed up on movie a couple of weeks ago and I'm like, Oh, I'm going to rewatch this. And it was just the stupidest thing I've ever watched. These, these people just sitting there, telling their absolute bullshit readings of the film and you know these guys there's this one particular dude in it and he's like oh yeah i'm uncovering all the government's truths by reading these films i fully expect (laughs) to be audited in my taxes this year people have followed me home and i'm like you're just a wacko i'm sorry but like (laughs) so if you like the shining and you want to have some fun for an hour just watching people go over their wacko theories Room third, room two thirty seven is so it's just entertaining just watching all these ridiculous people just go over their conspiracies about the film. Yeah, um, like there, I think there's a whole part. It's been years since I've seen it, but I remember there being like a whole part because Jack Torrance is reading like a Playgirl magazine at the beginning yeah. when he's waiting, and there that has been analyzed to death. And it maybe it means something, but it also could be like here, here's a magazine for you to read. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, it's. <laughs> But like there's there's parts in it where they were like they would literally stop frame by frame to be like, oh, and here's a phallic symbol. And like, okay, here's the but clouds. like I think there's one of Stanley Kubrick's in the clouds. I think that's yeah. And I still and, can't and see it. They, I, they, I still couldn't see it. I can't see it. Yeah. And I'm like, if they if he really was in the clouds, they would have drawn an outline here. They didn't draw an outline. <laughs> He's not in the clouds. You're seeing shit. Uh, but anyway, what 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 who wants to go next for their number five? The, the Shining will make an appearance later for me, but I, I just, so I kind of did this in the sense of like the, my top five of things that represent me. So, so the fifth spot's going to be my love for goofiness in horror and uh, nothing encapul- encapsulates that better than early Peter Jackson movies. Um, yeah. I think the man 
he obviously Lord of the Rings is, you know, whatever, but like his early horror films are so great. Um, the, the scene, the, the movie that I think is number five for me is dead alive. Have y'all seen that? It's also called brain dead. Oh, I, love that. I haven't. Yeah, right. no, I've, I've been meaning to watch it. I have heard, um, I've heard it, about it. it. It's just, there's this scene at the end where it's very, it feels very much like army of darkness type of scene almost where the guy has a lawnmower and he's going after these, these aliens, uh, kind of zombie creatures with a lawnmower and he's slipping because there's so much blood. Like he can't physically like, like it's so bloody from killing so many of these creatures that he's like slipping in the blood. It's just this fantastic, crazy, like wild. I, yeah, I love early Peter Jackson horror. And I think he's a great representation for me of like the, the fun and like the goofiness you can have in horror. So that'll be my, that'll be my number five. Honestly, it's really fun going back and watching his early stuff and thinking, this is who New Line wanted to do. <laughs> so <Rings."> true. <laughs> <laughs> they just looked at this movie and said, yeah, this guy can do Lord of the Rings. Like he made a porno <laughs> with, like, with like Muppets called Meet the Feebles. And it's, <laughs> you're like, what? It's, it's really hard to even find it now. I think Anchor Bay made a DVD release of it back in the day. But like, um, yeah, crazy. Yeah. Uh, I can't believe they put the, the trusted like Lord of the Rings franchise in the hands of that guy. <laughs> it was the best decision they could have made, but I don't know what they saw. Like, I love those movies, but it's like, that's not what I would have went to. He's a good pitch man, I guess. Yeah. Um, what about yours, Zach? All right. My number five is going to be, um, there's a lot of movies with this title, but it's going to be Possession. This is the 1981 by mm. Andre Zulowski. I don't, I probably mispronounced both his first and last name as on brand. Um, it's, I, have either one of you guys seen it? I'm not. I've been wanting to see it for a long time. I just can't get my hands on it. I just put up a new review on our site and I linked your review. So now oh. both people can read both of our reviews. Wait, I'll have to go and read read your thoughts on that for sure. Um, I, I love, I absolutely adore the movie. It's, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is the most, it, it gives me so much anxiety. Like, I think that's one thing, like I've seen it a few times now and I'm hoping to go see it on Halloween if I'm off of work because it's playing a, a local theater for me. Um, but it, it just, it's so anxiety inducing. And it's not even the horror parts. That it's this like broken relationship between like Sam Neill and oh, I can't think of her name. What the actress uh, is Isabel Johnny. That's it. I mean, the way her like the way she um, uses her body acting and stuff like that. Oh I mean, yeah, just it, it's it, I you know not to get overly personal here. I have suffered from panic disorder for years, and like she captures that like that chaotic, that frantic, and it it, it like almost makes me feel like it's going to give me like a slight panic attack just watching her in some oh, of these. Oh wow, um, yeah. Obviously, I don't want to give anything away for Adam because I think Adam. I actually think you will really like the movie, and I don't want. Yeah, to I've heard so much good much. things about it. I've, yeah, I've, I've tried to stay like I, I, I don't even really know what it's about. I know there's a man. I know Sam Neill's in it. I know his wife goes through some sh- like some kind of transformation or something. I know very little on purpose. Yeah, I, now, you know what? Just, I want to keep it that way, so I'm going to keep yeah. everything light. Um, and Adam, I hope you get to see it soon. Yeah, really want to see it. Uh, okay, so number four then. Um, a lot of my films I picked are from last century so I wanted to put something in from this century so I picked what I think is like the best horror film of the 21st century and I went with Ari Aster's Hereditary oh, yeah. um, any any uh, Hereditary fans? I, I like Hereditary I like Midsommar a little bit better 
but I really I like haven't seen that one. That's the thing. I haven't seen Midsummer. Um, um but no, I, Tony Collette that is just awesome. She was <laughs> fucking robbed. She wasn't even nominated for an Oscar, and she was fucking robbed. See, this is this goes back to me complaining about awards and how they how they view horror. <laughs> it's, yeah, it, she's it's, so she's so good in this movie. Holy shit, she's so good. Um. Yeah, I just love. I again to start talk about atmosphere. This film has it as well. Makes your skin crawl. I, I saw it in this. In, I saw it in the theater when it came out. Um, it's actually, I, actually no, I saw. I did see The Shining in the theater as well a few years ago. But this is the only film from the list I've seen in the theater. And I was just, I was, I could not sit down the whole way through. I was like, didn't know what was happening. I was moving around. I was sitting up. I was putting my head in my hands. It was just wow. One of one of the. It was just a crazy film to watch. It's just, it's so well done, so well made. Again, I'm sorry to atmosphere is going to be my buzzword for this episode, but Jesus Christ, the atmosphere in this film is insane. Tony Collette is insane. And I remember I, last Halloween, I watched it with my girlfriend, who's not a horror fan at all. She's not a horror person. The only horror film she's ever seen are the ones that I've made her watch with me, basically. She would never <laughs> go out of her way to watch one herself. And she even even now a year later i if she even gets a whiff of hereditary she will sleep with the lights on we wow. had to immediately watch another tony collette movie from when she was still in australia called muriel's wedding which is a, a comedy <laughs> movie we yeah. had to when we first watched hereditary we had to immediately watch muriel's wedding so that she would be able to go to sleep that night it just completely freaked her out um but yeah wow. she's crazy movie some it's horrible shit it's, it's yeah great it, it's a very effective film I, I like what Ari Aster's doing um though I have heard he wants to kind of move to do different genres as well I think he wants yeah. I think he, I don't know if he's he's being truthful he said at one time he wanted to do a four-hour comedy I saw that recently <laughs> but then recent reports saying it's actually not a comedy at all it is like another sort of horror drama so I don't know maybe well maybe he might have the same problem or something um, yeah. Hooper does like Hooper doesn't consider the first Texas Chainsaw horror film. He considers mm. it a comedy, and it's like me and you look at comedy very differently. Um. <laughs> 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 uh, so let's see. Um. Uh, we're, we're number four. I'll I'll focus on Jalo, uh, genre. Just I I love I could watch Jalo films all day. Jolly films, I guess. I, I don't know. One of them is plural. Um. I think Jolly Films is plural. I think Jolly is the plural, yeah. Yeah, okay. Uh, it's one of my it's one of my favorite genres. Like it's kind of like a comfort blanket for me. Like if I'm I can just throw on a Jolly film. Uh, and one of the ones that stands out to me in the genre is Blood and Black Lace. Have y'all seen that? Yes. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, yes. good film. I love it. Love Mario Baba in general. Um, Argento gets a lot of love for for the film he makes. Rightfully so. I think he makes some visually some of the best like kind of visual aesthetic work in horror, but um, I think Baba can just hold a story and, and, and keep you in suspense. And I think blood and black lace is a great example of kind of like bridging that whodunit genre and kind of like the, maybe even an early slasher film a little bit. And uh, it's just, it's excellent. I love it. So what yeah, I, what I kind of like, love. Oh, sorry, sorry, Adam. No, I was just going to say like, even like when you connect to the slasher, like they even have like the sort the whole idea of the costumed killer you know, with the, yeah. with the mask and everything like that. That's obviously a staple of, of slasher. You never just see a guy, you know, it, there's never just a normal dude as a slasher villain. There's always some kind of visual aspect. And yeah, Blood and Black Lace has that as well. 
Unless you're watching the mutilator. <laughs> but anyways, <laughs> I can't say I've even heard of that. So there we go. <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead, Zach. Racing. No, I, I should say, the, you know, since we're kind of talking about Jally in general, uh, one one of the things that I think is so interesting about rewatching them, because um, Deep Red's my favorite. I love Deep Red. Nice. Um, but I couldn't even, I still to this day can't even tell you, and I've seen that movie twice, who the killer in that movie was. And that's kind of a problem, and not a problem, but that's kind of a thing in Jally so much is, it's so like it's a big plot point, like oh, it's the who done it aspect, but it's so unimportant by the, like the whole experience, yeah, of who actually did it. Like blood and black, always like, someone very inconsequential. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like it's, <laughs> it's like oh, it's, okay. it's always someone who was in it for like five seconds. It's kind of like the anti Scooby Doo. Like <laughs> Scooby, like when an episode of Scooby Doo starts, you just like know that guy is the bad guy. And with with Jalo, it's like the opposite. It's just like some guy who was in the film for like five seconds before showed up in one scene and you're like oh who is who are you again <laughs> he's a sex maniac yeah it's the same in it's the same in a uh, bird, bird of the crystal plumage which is basically just a proto version of deep red deep red's mm-hmm. essentially just a remake but they but jelly does this thing where like the last 20 seconds it'll be like one more twist right or they're like like somebody will turn and like wink at the camera or like flash a knife or something and you're like well, what does that mean <laughs> and they don't sequel it like that's kind of the interesting thing where yeah. and slashers differ so much like that's true J- there's not sequels to jalo films typically that's true man slashers it's like we will make mutilator too i don't even know if that exists but i wouldn't doubt if it does if there's a mutilator <laughs> too well that's i mean we can that's a different discussion but like that's just probably a symptom of just trying to pump out stuff for the vhs era right mm-hmm. like you don't need a slumber house uh, slumber party house massacre four or whatever um <laughs> but you have... <laughs> <laughs> is that the best one um okay um for my number four i have uh ken russell's 1971 film the devils um yeah. I've, I've talked about it on here before so i won't go too in depth with it um it is just an insane film it's you it, it, you're dealing with uh Ken Russell's is doing a lot to criticize uh, the Catholic Church. He's doing a lot to really fundamentalism, I guess, is what he's really criticizing. Mm-hmm. Um, but like the way he goes about it is just so batshit insane all the way through. Like you know, to the point where we can't even get like a legitimate release with the whole film in it um, because Warner Brothers just doesn't want to do it. But I won't get into that. Uh, it's a great film. I don't know if either one of you guys have watched it or not, but. It's no. definitely worth watching. I was going to ask if you'd finally seen the rape of Christ scene. I, I bought a bootleg from Brazil just to watch that scene. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. I remember that on one of our first episodes, the rape was of it, Christ. Was it graphic or was it just the, like, because like Yodorowsky films are, if you look at them now, they're not as controversial as they were when they came out, but people were obsessed with like, what was the theme of like what was happening in the movie, right? But it's not so much what was actually being shown. So how, how bad was that scene actually? I mean, it, it's not like we're going it, to, it, it's metaphorical in a lot of yeah. ways, but I mean, there's obviously a very sexual element and you have uh, Oliver Reed playing this Christ-like figure. Cause these are all like, I don't know if you want to call them delusions or you want to call them visions or prophecies, whatever you want to see, but he's playing this Christ figure. He's got the, crown of thorns and there's this sexual theme to it. and honestly i think that's what warner brothers is is putting jesus in any sort of sexual sort of scenario and it's like nope <laughs> not doing that sorry <laughs> we don't know what he did between 12 and 30 okay 
um, but anyways, yeah. Uh, so go on to number three then. So number three for me um, is Carnival of Souls. Um, love this movie. Lo- love this movie so much. Again, the buzzword of the day, atmosphere. Yeah. You know, th- this, it's just, it's... This film has no right to be as good as it is. I think we've, we've definitely mentioned this film on the podcast before, just in terms of like its low budget aspect and how everything that's low budget about this film actually makes it better. A lot of the time when you're watching like a film that's low budget, you're kind of wishing, it's like, wow, this film could have been great if it had a bigger budget. But with this one, it's almost like, if this had a bigger budget, it, it would not have been as good. Everything, you know, whether it be, you know, the wooden acting of most of the cast or the really sort of out of sync sound design or the sort of low budget camera that they're using, the fact that it's shot in black and white, everything, it just adds to the atmosphere of the film. Um, it just makes it that much better, especially I'm not, I'm obviously not going to spoil it, but like once you know, once you've seen the film and it gets to the ending, it just makes so much sense why everything is so weird yeah. for the whole film. And it makes rewatches that much better. I, I love rewatching the film, knowing what happens because I see all the other quirky shit that happens throughout the film. And it just, it just all makes sense. Um, and it's definitely not intentional. Like I don't think her Carby set out to make the film intentionally sort of low quality to add to the plot. It's just, it was just one of the cinema's great happy accidents and it, it, it kind of is like Detour in a way. Uh, I don't know if you've got, have you guys seen Detour, that film mm-hmm. noir um, from, from the dude who made um, The Black Cat? Um, that again is very low budget. And, it's, you know, if you look at it through the lens of like other sort of compared to other film noirs, it's not very, you know, it's not groundbreaking or very good, but it's low budget actually adds and gives it this weird sort of almost kind of Lynchian vibe, which is completely not, you know, what was intended, but it just, it does that in hindsight. And, you know, Carnival of Souls for me, it just, it's one of those kind of films where it's just a, it's a fantastic happy accent. And I love everything about it. I wouldn't change a single thing. I wouldn't edit the sound design to make it sync up. I wouldn't change an actor to make him an actual good actor. I would leave everything as it is because it just, it's just all together. It's all perfect. You know, but, that kind of reminds me of, um, one thing, you know, I, I've done the other podcast with Andy. He's a big VHS collector. Um, and I, a lot of horror fans are VHS collectors because they like that lo-fi look. Like, they're not into yeah. the whole 4K, let's make, you know, Halloween, because I just got the new 4K of that, look as crisp and clear as possible. To them, that's not where the horror comes from. It's watching it on a VHS and a CRT TV that brings that horror in. And that almost sounds a lot like what you're talking about with um, Carnival of Souls. I also think it's one of the more underrated acting performances in horror. The, the, the female lead there, she just, she's perfect for that role. I don't know if she was as good of an actress or they just found the right casting, but like, I, I don't know. Any, I don't know how you could have possibly played that role better. She was amazing in that. And I believe there's a remake too, and I've never seen it. Oh, really? a remake um there's one from 1998 <laughs> oh yes i'm just looking at her um the, the lead actress candace hilligoss and this is like her only like she's only ever been in one other film she was uncredited in a third and then played herself in a documentary so the curse you know, she, of the living corpse yeah that's the, that's the other film i'm looking at here 
from Mouth two of years Hell later. Mountain. Hey, these are great titles, though. Yeah, but uh, yeah, like you know, she wasn't really. Maybe she started off maybe hoping to be an actress, but it obviously didn't last very long. Um, but yeah, I agree. She's she's great in it. She just she she give again. It's so hard to talk about this film without spoiling the whole thing. <laughs> right, right. But you know, yeah. she is she plays the part she's supposed to play perfectly. That's all I'll say about the film. If you're listening and you haven't seen Carnival of Souls, go by the Criterion and watch that, and also watch a documentary on her car because it's super interesting how he got into the business as well. Yeah. So yeah, Carnival of Souls, watch it without knowing anything about it. Um, so jumping genres quite a bit, uh, for number three, I went with kind of the exploitation subgenre, uh, and I, I hate to do this. I know this is kind of cheating. I can't separate Takashi Miike and Nico Masterakis. I can't like, they're both so brilliant at their respective games. So I'm going to mention two and sorry if that's cheating a little bit, but, uh, Ichi the Killer for me is such a fantastic example of the brain of Takashi Miike like it's a mix of just like that shit crazy scenarios and uh, like brilliant ideas like there's this one scene that jumps out to me where you actually see the blades on the killer's shoes um and it just it kind of has like a little like a brief chill that goes down because you like he just creates that atmosphere so well uh of I think this guy who's a killer without getting into the spoilers of, of what's going on exactly. Um, and then Nico Masteraki's made this movie. Have you all seen Island of Death? I have not. Oh, no, it's a big nope for me. Man, it's like, it's another one that just, you're like, what is wrong with the person that made this movie? <laughs> it's got like, like <laughs> you, the, the, the two main characters basically lure people into their place to have sex and kill them as a way of kind of getting off. Um, and that's just like the tip of the messed up iceberg. Like it gets into like just a bunch of, not that it necessarily is brutal in, in what it shows. Like, it's not like it, you know, it's not like a, a, a snuff film or something like that. It's not, not that, but as it gets into like themes of like incest or goats, <laughs> I'm trying to be as general as possible. You're just, you're just watching this. Like what is wrong with Nico Masterakis, but the end result is a, is a great, I think, entrant into the uh, exploitation genre. And I, I can't put one above the other because I love them both. So those are my two. Um, I, I actually, I already had, I think I read, you may have already wrote a review for it. I think you did because yeah. I already had it on my watch list. So I was like, Chris has had to have talked about this before because I have yeah. it on there. So I'm going to get around to it eventually. Um, my number three is going to be the <laughs> The one that was on my top 10 list that shocked Adam to death when we did that um, months ago, which is uh, Tremors from 1990. Yeah. Um, I need to defend myself quickly. I wasn't shocked that I, I think Tremors is bad. I was just shocked that he put it as like the top 10 best films ever made. I like Tremors. I just want to get that out of the way. I like Tremors. <laughs> well, it, you know, uh, Tremors has a lot of nostalgia for me, and I, I'll fully admit that. This is the This is probably the most the movie I've watched more than any other one. Like, I think I ruined a whole VHS tape when I was a kid. This was, it's just a movie I've loved my whole life. Um, I think it's, it balances horror and comedy. the the way it should be done. Like I like evil dead too. I think it balances it better here just because it always allows the horror to be horror. And the comedy is derived from the characters and their mm -hmm. act and not their actions, but how they react to one another. And, 
things like that. That's the comedy. They never make light of the creature, uh, the graboid, and the thing I love about it, it's just they use like every single practical effect trick in the book to make that movie, and it's not made for a huge budget. And it's just great. Like I, I love the film to death. I won't harp on it too long, but I just I just love it. Yeah, I do like Tremors. It has nostalgia for me. Not I didn't watch it as much growing up, but it was one film that my dad really liked when I was growing up. And I've seen like the first, like, you know, two or three, all because like he would have been watching them. So yeah, it has that kind of nostalgia for me as well. I haven't I haven't seen it in a long time. I do have the arrow release, but I haven't gotten around to to watching it myself. But uh yeah, it has that nostalgia for me as well. It's just it's very it's very sort of if you grew up in the nineties, you've probably seen Tremors at some point, like even if it's on TV or something. Yeah, and it was one of those movies that was like saved by the uh like by Blockbuster and your movie gallery uh-huh. and stuff like that because yeah. it failed so hard in the theater because the trailer is awful. Like I, I don't know if the arrow release includes it, I didn't check, but the theatrical trailer for that movie is awful <laughs> there was no doubt why people didn't go see it <laughs> who has the better worm tremors or dune rumors <laughs> that was that was a silly question wasn't it you know it was only ever going to be one answer <laughs> <laughs> oh wait I'm layer sure. of the white worm is a worm too there's th- i guess there's there's the uh trilogy of or the, the trifecta of, of uh worms here. worm worm movies <laughs> now thankfully this movie wasn't called land shark like it originally was going to be called Oh wow! Wow! Yeah, no, I saw it. Tremors is so much of a of a better name. Uh, so uh, my number two. <clears throat> so for me, with slasher movies, there's 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 slasher movies that are cinematically good, and I'll talk about one of those as my number one. And then there's slasher movies that are goofy and fun, and I think there's one that really has both. That this really draws the line between the two of being a really good film, but also having fun with the genre. And that's Scream. Yes. I adore Scream. It is one of my comfort movies. If I'm feeling low and I just want to watch something, I'm watching Scream. I don't know how many times that I've, I've seen Scream more times than I've seen other movies in my top 10. It should probably be in my top 10 at this stage, to be honest, which I've seen Scream so much. I love the film to death. It is fun. It is a really great slasher film of its own right. You know, it has, you know, jokes, it has quips, it, it, you know, it has its little sort of, um, what's the word? You know, it, it looks on the genre from the outside, you know, it has obviously, you know, Randy sort of discussing the rules while Halloween like, is on the background. Are you it saying has, it's like, it's very meta? Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, it definitely it's, it's a meta. It's a it's a postmodernist slasher film, absolutely, because it it does look in, on the genre. It is very inversive of that, but at the same time, it's also a really good, you know, slasher film. So, like, there's a lot of sort of like you know, it's going to be a weird comparison, but like if, like scary movie, for example, you know, which basically took the idea of Scream and just ramped up all the comedic and the sort of self reflective aspects. You know, scary movie is just basically Scream on crack. Because um, Scream is still has lots of funny moments, but it also has really good kills, really great villain, just a great cast in general. And like Wes Craven is also just like a really good talented filmmaker. So like cinematically, it's it's also extremely well made. It's extremely tightly directed, has great pacing. 
yeah, it's it's like a ten out of ten in terms of like horror films, like a ten out of ten horror film. It like to the point where in recent times this may eventually jump to number one as 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 crazy as it is to think about when, when we're going to talk about my number one and I, I have a funny feeling it's also going to be Zach's number one. So we'll probably just do both of those together. Yeah. But um, yeah, I, I love Scream to death. And I even, I even will happily watch the sequels. Scream 2, I think is like, and like 90% a great movie. Just like a couple of aspects I change. Scream 3 is largely bad, but it has moments that I think make it worth watching. And then Scream 4 is maybe the second best of the genre and i'm looking forward to the new scream as well which will be out next year so um yeah, i'm just a big fan of the franchise in general i think it's it's really great this is going to sound slightly off topic but it's not um have you seen the movie ready or not that came out in 2019 no that's um is that the one with samara, the be- Sam- samara weaving is that, yes is that? yeah i haven't seen it no i heard it's i heard it's good though it's good, and they're and that's the team, the two directors who they go by Radio Silence, but they're going to be the ones doing the new Scream movie. So, oh, cool! I better give that a watch before. Yeah, I think I'll give yeah. that a watch before that comes out because I've heard good things about Ready or Not. It's fun. It's so much fun. Um, yeah. But I agree with you. Scream. I actually just I watched it for October. It's actually been quite a few years since I've seen it, so I was a little worried. Like part of me was like worried to watch it. Like, what if it didn't <laughs> age that well? What if there's things in it? But I, I was. I was like, yeah, this movie's still fantastic. Like, it's so good. <laughs> like, I was like, when I was sitting there, like, what am I probably going to put it on my letterbox? I was like, you know, when I started, I was like, yeah, it'll probably be like four, four and a half. I was like, no, nah, it's five. It's, yeah. it's just a great movie. It's, it's so good. It's got Matthew Lillard's best performance. He's so good in it. It's just, it, he's just unbridled Lillardness. You know, they just <laughs> let him go wild during this film. Like, I think me and, uh, me and my girlfriend, like, quoted, like, his lines for, like, the whole week after we watched that movie. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Um, I, yeah, not, so not a slasher film, uh, but something we've already talked about earlier. Uh, number two for me is probably The Shining. Just, okay. I uh, basically, because I, I don't know how you could possibly look at that as not a horror film, but anyways, that I was shocked to hear that. Um, yeah, we've already kind of talked about it. I just, I don't know if there's a film other than my number one, which is for slightly different reasons. Um, I don't know that there's a film that instills a sense of like dread as much as the shining. And like, I just believe that that guy is slipping into insanity and we're kind of like watching it happen. And I just like, don't want it to happen. I I want his family to be safe. And the whole thing is just terrifying. So yeah, I think it's plus it's Kubrick. So who's not a bad filmmaker. So I, I think everything just kind of, goes together perfectly there uh one point uh, you meant we talked a little bit about uh non-horror directors kind of like going into the genre Mm -hmm. and you know William Friedkin made The Exorcist right but like he was kind of a if you look at his career as a whole it was mostly non-horror stuff as well yeah like a sort of action-y yeah thriller thriller filmmaker (laughs) uh, yeah no for sure and that's on they shoot zombies those are one and two of all of all time um, so, so maybe there's something to some merit there of, um, yeah. And anyways, pe- people that are like love horror movies, but just make their career doing something else and kind of take a stab at that genre for, you know, in one way or the other. I'm, I'm curious since, uh, and then just to be clear, the shining was probably going to be like my sixth or seventh if we had done 10. Um, have you guys watched Dr. Sleep yet? Mm-mm. No, I have the Blu-ray. It came in last week. I'm going to. I'm going to maybe try and watch it tomorrow, if not next weekend. 
theatrical, uh, not theatrical, uh, director's cut. That's the one. Not on there. The, I couldn't get a copy of the director's oh, cut in, re, in region the, B. The theatrical's still yeah. good, but the director's, like, I think is much better. But yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I specifically looked out because I remembered your, your review, the first one you did for the website. So I specifically looked out to try and find if they had a copy of the director's cut, but it, I can only get theatrical. But, uh, and you haven't seen it either, Chris? No. No. Oh, okay. Um, uh, for my number two, I'm going to, uh, while I didn't want to do anything with the same subgenre, I am going to cheat and have the same director. So my number two is going to be John Carpenter's The Thing, nice. um, which it, it, it's, I, I don't know what else I can really say about The Thing that hasn't been talked about to death. I, I just think it's a fantastic movie. It's, it, everything about it, it is one of the few movies that was a passion project for John Carpenter and it sucks to say, to sit there and see that that was probably what hurt his career the most was making the thing. Mm. Like the one time he didn't sit there and say, I'm making this purely for money. He made it because he loved the original movie and he loved the source material and it punched him in the face pretty hard through his, the rest of his career. It sucks. It's an honorable mention for me. I almost brought it in uh, for, for one of the other films. It's, it's kind of the perfect horror movie, right? I mean, it's sort of every beat is like, it's not too funny. It's not too goofy. It's not too campy. Like the whole thing is just, I think it's, it's I don't know. I love it. Yeah. It, it's so, it, it's very like, it has this like weird mix of the seventies and eighties to it. Like it was made early eighties, but it has that. I would never say uh, it's like the shining. If somebody said they thought that was a seventies horror movie, I'd be like, yeah, I could see that. Even mm-hmm. though it's made in 1980, the thing it's like, it is the eighties movie for me. Like it's, it has that fun element, but it never loses its suspense. Yeah. It, never, it doesn't sacrifice you know, the suspense to just make something cool and unique, it, it adds to it. So I could talk and about it all day, but I love the movie. To death. We, we talked about uh, practical effects earlier with The Invisible Man and, you know, the thing is probably the pinnacle of horror film, practical effects, in terms of what you can achieve practically. You know, the, some of the things they did in The Thing, you know, through animatronics are just mind-blowing. It's true. Yeah, like the uh, spider head thing is still, like, so creepy to me. I mean, I, maybe it's where I'm scared of spiders, but that whole part <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's it's a great it's a great movie should, should i um uh, should i give my number one first if i was gonna really... say yeah because i know me and zach are definitely have the same so you should maybe do do yours okay so i have you to thank for this adam oh. thinking about night of the hunter after watching it it jumped up to number one for me because of mostly the the shadow work and the way they play with perspective in that movie and the way that when the when the villain is there's a scene in particular I'm thinking where he's coming from the basement and he's reaching up to the girls as they're racing up the stairs, and the way that his hand and the shadow plays, he seems larger than life. He's this giant monster, and it's like this terrifying moment on screen. I know it's not a horror film in like in, in some senses, but it as I think about the film, I don't know that there's going to be ever a movie made that balances that ability to create dread whenever they need to, whenever the film needs to perfectly. And I think it's, it's going to be, yeah, it, it's going to be my favorite horror film, I think for a long time. Interesting. Cause if, if I had considered that a horror film, it, there's an argument to be made. It might be my number one, cause it, it's probably, it's, it's definitely in like my top three favorite films. I always, Maybe I think of it too much. I, I'm sort of, I'm subscribed to the, to the theory that the film is essentially a fairy tale. So maybe that's why I don't really lump it in with horror, but it definitely has 
horrifying moments we sort of talked about earlier you know films like this like where where's the line for horror and you know this this could blur the line i know a lot of people call it a film noir because obviously it has dark themes um, mm-hmm. i i think i always think of it kind of like a fairy tale just set in sort of non-fairy tale land um because it has all those sort of perif- you know those 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 uh figures that you'd always see in a fairy tale the the sort of you know the the evil stepfather the mm-hmm. the fairy godmother kind of characters you know after the you know they're sort of battling for the souls of these children so that's maybe why i always think of it as like a fairy tale but yeah it, if i was to consider it a horror film it, it could very possibly probably be number one for me as well and if anybody really wants to hear us uh talk a lot about this movie it was one of our first episodes it was like one of our what first six episodes i think yeah it was right yeah it was it was already it was already doors uh, yeah yeah so that we it's i think I, you know just to spoil that a little bit we all Love that movie. I, I'm a big fan of it as well, and probably it has one of my favorite shots in any film. If I was going to do like a top ten of that, I love. Can I part. guess which one it is? Oh, I bet you know which one is it. Is it the horse on the when he's riding the horse? That's a great one. But I was actually okay. thinking of the underwater scene. Yeah, the hair. Oh yeah, I how, did I, how could that. I forget? I that That's so good. Yeah, oh, I love that's that. Um, it's just it, honestly that whole movie. It, you know, it, it's a cliche to say. You know, every fl- frame of painting. But there's that some is. truth to that. It looks so good at every scene. There's there's two films where I would happily take any frame from that film and hang it on a wall. That and Vertigo. Like yeah, any, I need to re- any, I'm rewatching Vertigo soon since I have the 4K. But yeah, not to get off topic there. But yeah, <laughs> I suppose we'll meet one to me and Zach's number one then. So um, unsurprisingly, it's uh, John Carpenter's Halloween. If you're a regular listener to the podcast, you probably we, we've mentioned it a billion times. I'd say. Why do you like Halloween, Zach? What does Halloween mean to you? Halloween to me just kind of is just the embodiment of what horror really is to me. Like it's simple, it's effective, it's moody, it's it just has all these great elements to it, and the simplicity is what makes it. Like I love The Shining, but The Shining is a little bit more complicated, not a ton more, but it has like a little bit more moving parts to it. I just love how much it accompanies into just this small little town and something that can happen while not forgetting like it's a horror movie. There's like this, even this supernatural element to it that gives Michael Myers who has no personality, who has no character really like this bit of character to him makes him intriguing. And while we're still watching movies with him 43 years later and they're eight, 11 more since then. So yeah, that's really what it comes down for me. I agree. It's, it's, I think it's just the perfect horror film. It's so simple. There's no, to quote Ron Swanson, there's no frou-frou symbolism. <laughs> it's just a simple movie of an of an apex predator hunting and killing. It, it, it's, it's just such a simple film of the shape, Michael Myers, he sees some people, he wants to kill some people, he does it. And despite the fact that there is very little blood or gore i think there's maybe i think we see blood flow maybe maybe twice in the whole film yeah very very little in in the entire film it is still so scary michael myers is the embodiment of a horror movie monster because he's not really a man he has no personality as you said he he's vaguely supernatural but not explicitly so he he is just he is the shape and I, I love that they call him that in the 
you know, in, in the credits, they credit him as the shape because that is literally what he is. He's just, he's like a shark. He's like, to go back to Tremors, he's like a land shark. He is a, he is a, he is a land shark, you know? <laughs> um, exactly. And, you know, it's, that, that's what makes him fascinating. Like, you know, we gave personality to Freddy and I, I don't have a problem with that. I like the Nightmare on Elm Street films, but he carries a lot of them. The thing I think was always kind of an interesting part for filmmakers of Halloween, even for the good and bad ones, was you were having to take a character and make the things around him interesting. Because, and that's not to say Michael Myers isn't intriguing, he is, but there's nothing to read into him. Like, you can't read that much into that character. He's essentially Everything like around, the, it's got to work. He's essentially like the, the shark from Jaws, basically. Mm-hmm. You know, they are very, in terms of like their, their, relation to the plot and how it pans out they are very similar um, and obviously the, the films are obviously extremely different and you know there's no one trying to hunt obviously Loomis is trying to hunt down Michael Myers but not in the same way Chief Brody and and the other guys are but yeah Loomis is much more of a Van Helsing type yeah for sure yeah. for sure interesting I like that analogy yeah Halloween is just it's just the perfect horror movie there's there's not not a single not a single thing I would change about it. The music is perfect. It is, uh, there's a reason why it's probably the most ripped off horror score, uh, including this podcast. Uh, we also ripped it off, as you'll notice at the start <laughs> of this episode. Um, <laughs> and it's fascinating because just... it, it shows Carpenter's mind as a musician because it's, bon- it's a bongo beat. Like the yeah. whole thing is just a bongo beat. Uh, I think it's 5 4 time. And it's like, it takes someone who really understands how music operates to think. Hmm, I need a scary movie. What am I going to use? Bongos. <laughs> Bongo beat on the piano. It is 5-4. Yeah, I've just realized. I never even popped up before. That's 5-4. Yeah, 5-4, yeah. It's the only thing I know about music. I know nothing about music. I've just heard him talk about it in an interview so it, many it times. It explains but... now why, I've always, why it's always felt off, because I've never reconsidered really the, the time signature. And it explains now, because obviously 5-4 is, is a... You know, it's there's a reason why it's not used in popular music because it just it feels off to like the, the the regular ear, like unless you listen to like jazz or whatever. Five four is just gonna it's gonna feel weird. There's a reason why no pop song is in five four because it just there's something off about it because it feels like it feels like you know a record skipping when you and have it, an extra it, beat. Yeah, and it captures this movie like you know like Lori. She always feels like something's off even before anything happens. Like yeah, she's always looking over her shoulder. There's always that that she she sort of feels like there's something going on. Like yeah, what but I'll I'll film? keep talking about it. So we should probably move on before I just like take up the whole podcast talking about it. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, so look, those are our, our top five um, listeners. I hope you enjoyed. If you haven't seen any of these films, please do. If you have and you like them um, on the Patreon where the podcast, both the unedited version and the, the edited version are both going to be available. So do please comment and tell us, you know, what your top five is or if you, you agree with ours. All right. And now we're going to get into the 1997 film Cure by Kiyoshi Kurosawa. Yeah, uh, this it. is a wave of gruesome murders is sweeping Tokyo. The only connection is a bloody X carved into the neck of each of the victims. In each case, the murderer is found near the victim and remembers nothing of the crime. Detective Takabi and psychologist Sakuma, I'm getting now I'm going to start losing it, are called to figure out the connection, but their investigation goes nowhere. Dot dot dot. So, um, what did you guys think of this one? 
I'm just looking it up real quick. So it's uh, they shoot zombies. It's 401. Okay. Uh, and it's going to take me a second to get to they shoot pictures. Uh, let me see if I can get that quickly. They shoot pictures is 1051. Okay. So it's okay. right outside the top 1001. Okay. Yeah. So a lot, a lot of critical love for this. Um, honestly, I get it. I think this is probably the movie for me that feels like the movie David Fincher always wanted to make. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. I, I, I think it's perfect. Uh, I, I just saw it. I haven't had a chance to do my write up on it yet and really put some consolidated like thinking into it. Um, but it, it does this thing that I love in suspense movies, kind of horror movies where it just shows little pieces of the reveal throughout the movie and you kind of get to see you you kind of like as the cop is trying to figure out what's going on you you follow you you follow the cop and you learn as he does in this case uh what the the important pieces of evidence along the way um and and they keep the guessing high throughout the majority of the film so i think it's a masterpiece uh i I think it's talked about as a masterpiece the right way um i i think it's a Great film. Really loved it. You really talked awesome. about um, with uh, Fincher, and of course, obviously, you know, comparisons to Seven and Zodiac are there. This yeah, also sure. reminded me a lot of Bong Joon-ho's uh, Memories of Murder as well, like that he mm-hmm. would create, I, I don't know, five or six years after this. Um, I feel a lot of that in there as well, especially the end in a lot of ways, which I won't spoil, but... I, I completely agree. Like, that was... Th- those are the two films I was thinking about the whole time, Zodiac and Memories of Murder. I was getting seven vibes from, from it as well. So I, I yeah, I, I completely agree with you guys so far. I really liked it. Um, it's definitely a horror film. I know a lot of people would say it's like a crime thriller. <laughs> um, but uh, I think the villain, the villain makes it a horror film. Yeah. And the way that Kurosawa even films it, again, I'm sorry for saying atmosphere for the billion time. We should get an atmosphere <laughs> jar or something where I have to put it a euro and every time I say the word atmosphere. Yeah, that's what our listeners are probably doing a, a shot of whiskey now for the they're probably absolutely blitzed listening to this episode. Um <laughs> uh, but yeah the, the way Kurosawa kind of films this like the way he's kind of like a step back it's kind of like the way memories of murder are shot you know kind of the um and, and zodiac in a way sort of by by stepping back he creates this almost kind of like a true crimey vibe to it. It feels like a true crime documentary a lot of the time, um, but yeah, it's definitely it's definitely a horror film. The villain, the villain is fantastic. He's one of the sort of best villains I've seen in sort of recent yeah. films. He he was so unnerving. One element that I think would be very, well, I think this would specifically scare Japanese audiences when it first released, because um, kind of the thing I thought about a lot throughout the film was in two years before this there was the Tokyo subway sarin attacks where this cult came in and gassed um, I think it was five of the compartments in a uh, bus they were a death cult and uh, you know in the movie kind of plays with that too with the whole hypnotist aspect which isn't a spoiler they show that in like the first like 15 minutes of the movie Uh, but this idea of controlling other people in a sense and you know these people committing crimes almost without reason in a lot of cases or not really sure what the reason is. I, I think that 
I, 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 the connection may not be purposeful, but I feel like that is something that would have been on the minds of a lot of Japanese people at the time when the sarin attacks happened just a couple years beforehand. That was a question I had for y'all. Like that, that, that was one of the things about this film that really kind of stood out to me as being very uh, well done and also just a very interesting idea is that you, you, you have, or like an interesting idea to explore through a movie is you have these people that are otherwise not killers commit a murder without fully understanding what's going on and uh, sort of not even have no memory of it, I guess, right? And that's sort of how the film is set up. Uh, I'm surprised that that idea hasn't been explored more in horror because it's, that's a great, like, that's, that's terrifying. <laughs> like, I'm just... <laughs> Yeah, it's almost body horror in a sense, like not yeah. having control of yourself. Yeah, right. And I'm just thinking of like moments where, I don't know if you all have experienced this, but like there's moments as a parent where you're exhausted. It's like, you know, month three, the baby's not sleeping. And you're just, you're at this moment where you're like, I have to sleep. And you like call in a babysitter or like you call in somebody because you're like, you, you, you get to a point where you're like, I can't, be responsible for my actions in the next 20, like I have to sleep. Uh, you know what I mean? And like, and most parents tell very similar stories of like those first four months of their first child. It's just like something you haven't really ever fully experienced before because you have to be responsible. You have to be mentally like uh, uh, with it. And you're also the most tired you've ever been. So it's like this crazy mix of things. That's the closest. I'm not saying that I'm not saying that you, you think of murder. That's maybe a weird example to use. But moments where the mind is like you lose control of your mind briefly and you, you're kind of aware of it. Maybe like a smaller example would be if you've ever driven like at three in the morning for whatever reason, you have to be driving long distances at that time. And you're just like doing everything you can to stay awake. But your body is like about to go to sleep. Um, there's just I, I can't really think of the perfect comparison, but there's these moments where you don't feel fully in control of your mind. And those moments are very, very scary. Well, there's like, you know, the idea of, you know, I suppose accidentally killing someone is obviously going to be different to this because like they were not in control. But obviously, obviously there was the news about Alec Baldwin on the set of his film. I don't know if you guys have come across that news yet. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Very so, specific. you know, I'd say like the feeling that, you know, these characters probably had probably a similar feeling that Alec Baldwin's having right now, you know, yeah. the idea of, of, of killing someone with it not being your fault at all. You know, obviously in his situation, he was handed something he shouldn't have been handed and told it was safe. And obviously the characters in Cure, they were just under the influence of, of a villain. But it's the same, same kind of idea where someone is dead at their hands and it wasn't their fault at all. Um, so I, I, it's an unimaginable feeling, really. Um, in, in society, you know, we, we have a hard time dealing with that, too. Like you talk about like the girls who were under the influence of Charles Manson, like yeah how much blame do we give them like or you know and obviously the, you know obviously they hold more than these characters do here but we have a hard time to figuring that out as well like what when or when you do something how responsible are you for it and i, I think that's a very fascinating thing um with this movie is they're 100 percent responsible and also zero percent responsible at the same mm -hmm. time there, okay, there's a TikTok thing that just happened where somebody was, they, somebody in China was, I guess, an influence on China was convinced to eat um, like pest control or, or something on, on air. Like the, the, the people, her fans were like pushing her to eat this thing. 
and it wound up killing her. And, and it's a, it's an interesting discussion around culpability, right? Like she, she was not under the influence of a, of a hypnotist in this case. Um, but she was definitely the under- same. It's the same idea, I suppose, to maybe make it a bit more topical and more relatable to everyone. It's the same idea as kind of anti-vaxxers. And, you know, the things that they spread online, I know they, they sort of prey on vulnerable people who then don't get vaccinated because they've heard all this anti-vax nonsense and then they end up dying because they didn't do something as simple as getting a COVID shot. Right, yeah. Like, like how, like how, like, like, do we hold, like there was, there's a, there was a recent example in Ireland of this guy, this older gentleman, lived on his own, very vulnerable person, and he was in hospital on a ventilator and an anti-vaxxer came in that he was already sort of connected with and took him out of the hospital, brought him home, and he died less than 24 hours later. The anti-vaxxer wasn't held responsible. He should be, because he was one who convinced this guy that he didn't need to be in a hospital, that the doctors were trying to kill him. Mm. And, you know, so it's the same kind of idea, really, you know, in, in terms of how the responsibility gets sort of thrown out to, you know, if we put it in the perspective of cure, because I obviously don't want to go too off topic here, but put it on the, in the perspective of cure, like the people who carried out the murders under the influence of the villain, how, like, are, do, they, do we hold these guys responsible? You know, if this was us in their shoes, how would we feel about this situation? You know, it's, it's a very scary idea. And I think that's what definitely makes this a horror film because the situation that the characters are put in is just terrifying. And the interesting thing with all of us talking, it's something I kind of uh, noticed. We all gave very different stories at different times, you know, some today, some years ago. This is a problem that, and I think that's why Curious had a staying power, is because it's not just related to one thing. It's it's mm-hmm. something very human and very um, to that sense. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what kind of makes the movie interesting. You make so many connections with just that simple idea. Love that, yeah. So I, I, I just was thinking if this is going to be a spoiler, I'm pretty sure it's not, but y'all stop me if you feel like it's getting into spoiler territory. I, I don't think this is. We see like halfway through the movie-ish, we see him actually for the first time in the moment where he's like playing with someone, right? It's, it's yeah. the woman doctor. And we see the way that he preys on her history to, and, and to kind of get her to that mental state of where she can become a killer for him. Um, one of the questions I had, I don't know if this was discussed or maybe it was the point that we weren't supposed to know. How does he, how does he actually know so much about these people? Cause he, he has these like feelings or intuitions or he talks about them, like not being complete or, or having these unresolved things in their life. But like, it, does it ever, is there any discussion on how he knows? Well, I, it, I guess the way I kind of read it and I could be off base, it kind of reminds me of horoscopes. Like a horoscope can apply to anyone. Like that's kind mm-hmm. of the power behind them. You can hand someone a random horoscope and tell them it's their zodiac symbol, and it applies to them. I think a lot of what he tells them is things that apply to a lot of people. I mean, I think there might have been some. Spe- it's been a little bit since I've watched it now, but I, I remember it, it seems to be there's they're specific enough and also broad enough to where you can kind of get un, you know to kind of identify with someone. It's kind of like those those hoaxer mediums that you see on like TV and stuff. You know, they'll if you throw if you throw enough shit at the wall, some of it's gonna stick. Oh, and then once yeah. you find out what's stuck, you can kind of dig a, a bit deeper. 
you know, I, I don't think it really showed. I, I'd say like with this film, because this guy is supposed to be this kind of master manipulator type, I think we're given, you know, credence to maybe suspend our, our belief a little bit in terms of how he can be so specific and how he, he can know so much because this character, he's supposed to be, like I said, a master sort of manipulator and yeah. be able to read so much from just like a person's expression, for example. So I don't remember exactly how specific he was getting with these, you know, when he was doing, you know, his thing of putting people under his influence. I don't remember exactly how specific he was. Um, but yeah, I think it's just one of those things where, you know, throwing up, like I said, throw, throwing up shit at the wall, some of it's going to stick. So like just throw out enough stuff and you'll eventually be able to, you know, you'll, you'll catch something that applies to someone. If, if magic is the, uh, if what makes magic so powerful is the ability to, to learn sleight of hand, like so much magic is just based on like hiding something in plain sight. Right. Yeah. Maybe, maybe there's a, there's a similar type of skill that's learned in the power of persuasion around being specific at times and then being able to be general at times based off of like assumptions, like with the doctor specifically, he says, when you're in medical school, you were like cutting up a cadaver. And maybe that's just one of those things that feels specific, but like, is actually a pretty general thing that happens in medical school. Um, but maybe it was like just specific enough to where it kind of triggered that, that memory for her or something. You know, you know what I'm trying to say? Like, yeah. Yeah. Like it's an experience, everyone from medical school, but everyone has a distinct memory. Of yeah. It. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, you get your, I, you get your personal feelings from something everyone experienced. I think that's what makes the villain so scary because you know, obviously he plays the simpleton, he plays someone with amnesia or whatever. Um, you know, he's very unassuming, the kind of guy where you're like, ah, oh, don't mind him, he's he's harmless, you know, that kind of guy that, you know, everyone yeah. kind of sees on, you know, you, you've come across these people in real life, you know, these kind of guys who just seem, you know, uh, a few sausages short of a meat lover's pizza, um, <laughs> you know, that that kind of type. So, um, and and he plays that role so well, and because people are so unassuming to him, he's he puts himself in in the position to be able to encroach on people's minds and and sort of yeah. you know do his thing. And you know what I like about this film is that for me, like it has the suggestion of possibly being supernatural. You know, obviously I know that it goes into the past a little bit in terms of like the history of you know telekinesis and things like that. It's never like it's never explicitly supernatural, but there's always an idea that maybe, maybe he could be like, maybe he could be the devil or something like that. That's, that's why I kind of liked it. You know, they kind of left him vague as a, as a character for a lot of it. He, he's a very, he's a very vague character. We don't really see a lot of his, his backstory and, you know, how he got into this position or why he's really doing it. Other than this idea that he was studying, you know, this old sort of um, telekinesis right. trick or not telekinesis. Yeah, Michael Myers. Uh, yeah, exactly. You know, in, in, in that idea where he's scary because we know so little about him, but yet he's so powerful. Hmm. I, I know that uh, people don't necessarily love J.K. Rowling right now, and for good reason, but that is one of my favorite things she did with the character of Voldemort, was he was just a kid who got curious about the dark arts hmm. and sort of built his life around that ability to like execute, be the best at that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, you know, it's, it's interesting to, to think of a normal person who was a kid who then goes off onto this path and has a skill and something that is so harmful, I think is a, is a kind of a, a good idea for horror. 
uh, and it's it's used well here. I do like the idea of supernatural. That that'd be an interesting sequel if he's uh, uh, somehow if you see the origin story of this kid or something. But yeah, like I, I suppose I, one thing I want to talk about as well is just the ending. So I'm just going to put a spoiler warning out for listeners if you haven't seen the film, maybe skip. Um, well, actually, we're not going to be just a spoiler for anyone listening. We're not going to be doing any other business this week, so. Um, this will be the last segment. So you might want to cut off here if you want to avoid spoilers for this film. But um, there's two things about the ending that I love for like entirely different reasons. And I don't know if you guys are sort of maybe love this as much. So the first thing I like is just, it's kind of like weirdly funny to me. And it's basically just when the detective is just like, you know what, I've had enough of your shit and just shoots him down. Yeah. And just, just shoots the shit out. It's kind of like, it really reminded me of Indiana Jones. You know, no, no, where the dude is like, you know, with the nut, yeah, with, with the, the, with the, the sword, <laughs> and Indy's just like, no, fuck this, and just shoots him. <laughs> I kind of like this, that you know, it was a really blunt ending. I just kind of, I, yeah. I really like that. But just when you think it's over, then it just has this little, you know, Kurosawa just kind of winks at you at the end, then with, with the very last shot, yeah, with the waitress where she takes yeah. out the blade, and then it just ends. Yeah, Kurosawa is just like fucking with you. Then is like, is this really over? You know very jelly yeah you know <laughs> like if like this is why i think maybe the idea that the that the, the the villain might have been maybe like a demon or the devil or something maybe he's now sort of moved on to his next vessel maybe the detective is now sort of in in, in you know um carrying this sort of darkness within him so but, yeah there was just two two things that, two very different things about the ending that i really liked so this was my question and so if we're doing spoilers i don't know that so the guy's name was mamia right mamia yeah the, the, yeah the, I don't wasn't he like so my reading was he was also under the influence of something else that he could like like he was being controlled by something right because wasn't my reading but maybe I maybe I'm wrong well I guess you could see that because he has the memory well he claims he has the memory issues too right so I mean that's kind of the he has the memory issues I thought that was his stick though was that his way of getting people close to him because he was they're all like, oh, this guy, he doesn't, he has amnesia. Let's take care of him. I thought it was part of his stick. But the cop at the end watches that tape and it's that nonsense kind of language, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I'm wondering if that's the transference of this, the, the, the spell. Like if he's now under the spell as well as the movie ends. Perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's possible. I mean, then that kind of goes into that whole responsibility angle. Like if he's under the influence too, can we even say he's responsible? Yeah. I don't, yeah, exactly. That was, I don't think, like, I don't know that the Mamiya character ultimately had culpability if this reading is true because he was under the influence the whole time. It just harks back to what we mentioned earlier about some people not liking it, liking ambiguity in their horror. And I absolutely do. Give me oh, an ambiguous ending yeah. every time. Uh, I like to figure it out for myself. And this is the reason why, because now we've just had, we like have different readings of the same film, the same film. We've, we've all seen the same thing but we're thinking about it in different ways, which is, which is really, I think the best thing a film can do and a filmmaker can do is make the audience have a little think about it. It has staying power too. Cause I mean, you think about cure, how many criteria crap posts on our criterion have talked about this needs a criterion. Oh, it's one of the most requested every, <laughs> I, I remember when, when Janice sort of announced they had a 4k going to be showing and the internet went wild because it, it meant up probably at some point it's going to come criterion. And uh, I know it's on Eureka already, for if you don't want to wait for Criterion, but obviously you're probably better off waiting for the 4K because I don't think the Eureka one is the 4K remaster. So you're probably better off waiting. 
This is one of those ones we were talking earlier about films that might be better on VHS with grain. I think some of these scenes would play really well on, on like a grainy image. Like, like there's that one scene where the detective goes and sees uh, Mamiya when he's in like a prison, like an old beat up prison. The grainy prison in, walls, yeah. Yeah, and he, and he sees he's sitting on the toilet and like that scene looks like something almost out of Saw. Um, and I think some, some certain scenes like that would play really well with some grain. For sure. Yeah, I think it looked I think it looked great the way it did. Like it, it sort of adds to the, you know, that sort of grittiness, yeah. that griminess. Really, it kind of adds to the film. Yeah. I, I don't think this would like I suppose like it's always nice to see a picture clearer, really, but I don't think this film suffers from not being in 4K. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a good way to say it. That wraps up this week's episode of They Live by Film. If you want to read more of our thoughts, visit theylivebyfilm.com. And you can also follow our Letterboxd, Reddit, and Instagram accounts from the links in the description. For now, take care. 